thank you to the brother who chose that last song. What do, we, what do we expect God to do when we ask him, I think it was four times, we ask him to lead us to Calvary? What does it look like to go to Calvary? I'm beginning and ending today's message with a story. <clears throat> Both stories are somewhat similar in nature in that they focus on the importance of what Jesus said we are to do when we approach the communion table. Says this do in remembrance. Don't ever forget what salvation cost. During the 19th century, the country of Ireland was stricken by a potato famine. In the course of this time, when hunger and poverty was rampant, many Irish people immigrated to America. Unknown to anyone else on board, a young Irish boy stowed away on an American-bound ship. At sea, the ship struck an iceberg and began to sink. As people scrambled frantically for the lifeboats, the captain supervised the activity and was the last to leave the sinking vessel. When he looked back, when he looked back at the ship, he saw the young stowaway coming out of hiding. The brave captain ordered his lifeboat back to the sinking ship. He climbed aboard and rescued the little boy. Placing him on the seat that he, the captain, had vacated, the only available space in the lifeboat. As the small lifeboat slowly pulled away from the ship for the second time, leaving the captain to go down with his ship. The captain yells out to the boy, son, Never forget what has been done for you today. I don't know. I suspect that young lad may never have forgotten. But I ask how many sons and daughters of the captain we came to worship this morning have all but forgotten that we also were once on a doomed sinking ship. His was 
a rescue of maybe 60, 70, 80 years, hours could go into infinity. Son, never forget what has been done for you today. So when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was his way of saying, never forget what has been done for you. So we have on the table here in front what we refer to as emblems. And as you probably already know, teachers, preachers, speakers for centuries already have known that inserting things known as, I don't know, preaching props, illustrations, object lessons, injecting or or weaving them into their presentations have found them to be very helpful in getting the point across. Sort of like uh, uh, producing or posting a sticky note in our mind. And so Jesus, in a sense, did that for us by using bread and wine when he gave us the instruction to remember the most significant event in history. He wants us to allow this bread, this cup and juice to help us remember that he actually was willing to do this for us. Die for our redemption, this through in remembrance. During the Last Supper, as we have it given there in 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll turn there a bit later and read a section. But Jesus, it tells us Jesus took bread, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body given, uh, this is my body broken and given for you, do this, this do in remembrance. And so that, that, uh, that breaking of bread at what we think of as that first communion service has been reenacted down through the centuries as a way of helping God's people to remember. Keeping the event refreshed in the minds of those of us who have been cleansed, saved, forgiven, and redeemed. Another significance of the Bregwin bread is, the, is the, the symbolism of Christ as the bread of life. One doesn't have life spiritually unless he partakes of this bread, Jesus said. At that first communion in the upper room, Jesus describes this breaking of bread in these terms. This is my body broken for you. Uh, we know, however, according to 1 John 19, that not one bone of Christ, of Jesus' body, was broken on the cross. Let me read, uh, this is a section that in the same chapter Manny read from, but later on, in verse 31, the Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for the Sabbath day was on at, was on high day, they besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they broke not his legs. 
For these things were done that the scripture should be filled, a bone of him shall not be broke. I, I don't think those, well, I'm pretty sure that those soldiers had no idea they were fulfilling scripture that day. They went out to break the bones. Come to Jesus, they didn't break his. He willingly received this punishment and suffering for our redemption. It's tragic when a believer loses the wonder of what it means to be redeemed. But it's even more horrific when he forgets the Redeemer. Martin Lloyd-Jones once defined a Christian as a person who is amazed at the fact that he is forgiven. He does not ever take it for granted. I asked myself as I was getting ready, am I amazed that Jesus died for me? Am I still amazed about it? This remembrance this morning is not so much for his sake as it is for ours. In rough calculations, I have uh, participated in somewhere, I don't know, maybe around 80 communion services. I've also visited a, a number of churches in various denominations and watched how they did communion. One thing that all of these uh, services had in common, as I remember them, was that the emblems were on a table. There always seemed to be a communion table of some kind. Those tables came in various different sizes and styles, some simple, some fancy, some decorative, some plain, but as I remember it, they always, we always had a table. I don't know, I, I think the table has some significance for us an occasion like this. I think it's noteworthy because a table is a place where family and close friends generally gather together often to share a meal, or just to share with each other, to care for each other. Our brethren church friends with their love feast have likely caught something here, caught a value or a tradition that maybe we've somewhat missed with their love feast. Or maybe we just haven't thought about it as much as we could. This year we're having uh, an Easter service with an early Easter service with a brunch. Maybe sometime at our communion we should think about having a love feast. I didn't ask the other ministers if this is okay, but I, I kind of think maybe we should think about that. While a table is probably not absolutely necessary for a communion service, it is however good to remember that the first communion took place around a table, a dinner table. And very likely that's why the Bible records this first communion, both the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Table. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 20, he calls it the Lord's Supper. Earlier in the chapter, in verse 21, he refers to it as the Lord's Table. I propose to us also that this table practice or tradition value 
enhances our practice of close communion. We say this is family time. We say and suggest that this partaking is for those who are willing to open up their lives to each other for admonition, for correction, for exhortation, for rebuke. All those good things that loving brothers and sisters are to do for each other in a healthy family setting. So as we think of the Lord's table this morning, what are a few things that are to be significant for us as we gather around the Lord's table for communion? This first one, I hope, is not too simplistic for us. But it's simply a place to remember Jesus. It's first and foremost a place to remember Jesus. When Jesus sat around the table with his disciples and gave them the bread and the cup, twice he told them, do this in remembrance of me. Short and simple, when we take communion, we think of Jesus. He is our focus. He is our reason for being here. We remember him. I have three areas that I'd like for us to consider as we remember Jesus at the Lord's table. First of all, we remember his sufferings. Remember also that it was a death on a cross, a crucifixion. And thirdly, remember why. So first of all, we should remember his sufferings. For I received from the Lord, this is, this is in 1 Corinthians 11, again, we're going to turn there later, but in verses 23 and 24, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered unto you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. I think the breaking of the bread has significance in communion. And I know over COVID we had the bread diced, and I was glad when we could get back to actually breaking it as we commune. It was only after Jesus broke the bread that he told his disciples, this is my body broken for you. So it's not just the bread, it's the broken bread that is significant. And as we take the bread that has been broken, we should remember Jesus' broken body. We should especially remember his physical sufferings in the body. We should remember his agony of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, a long, long night of wrestling. We should remember his unlawful arrest in the middle of the night. It's not the way you were supposed to do it. We should remember his unfair trial and the false accusations brought against him. We should remember Judas's betrayal, Peter's denial, and all his disciples abandoning him, abandoning him at his hour of greatest need. 
I wonder this morning if it could be helpful for us to actually do an exercise by writing down on your paper, if you're taking notes, a list of the 12 most significant men and women in your life. And then after you've made that list, visualize, picture them abandoning you in your time of greatest need. Yeah, all 12, the ones you wrote down. Now, for the sake of time, I'm suggesting you think of at least three or four. And we're just going to pause a little bit and give you time to think about three or four of the most significant people in your life that when everything comes crashing down and you're at the end of your rope, these four or these three, you're confident they have your back. So just write down, or in your mind, think of who those three or four, and if you have time, you can write the other eight also. Do 12 of them. When you have more time, you can fill in the other eight. One of the 12 that you just, one of those that you just wrote down does an absolute betrayal. One of them actually meets you at a local park at night among a crowd of other folks who are there also, comes up to you while everybody's watching what's going on, approaches you and greets you with a kiss. Something he had planned beforehand as a way of identifying you. To those who he knew very well were out to get you. All for a small bag of money. Money that just hours later he threw across the room. And in desperation, despair, misery, went out and committed suicide. This is one of your top 12. There are, there are words in our English language for friends like that, betrayal, Treachery, duplicity, infidelity, deceitful, treason. It's not what you should expect from a man on your list or woman. I, I don't know. I think it's safe to say that most humans, maybe especially men, I don't know, can probably deal with physical pain better than extreme emotional pain. The pain of seeing Judas do this and dealing with the disappointment, the betrayal, 
with one of the top 12 on your list, I think would have had to be tremendously emotionally draining. It is said that those who commit suicide generally have little thought or consideration about how their friends will need to process their decision for doing so. No question this morning that Jesus loved Judas Iscariot. He did. He was about to die for him. Even him. Another one on your list, in fact, one of the top three. Turn to Luke chapter 22. And we'll read the record. This is the record of one of the top three. Of how desperate this man was to try to disassociate himself with Jesus. Again, at the time when a good friend is most needed. As we read this, we remember this record comes to us on the heels of this very same friend promising to die for him. Verse 33 of the same chapter, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. So Peter, he could talk the talk. But the walk this night looked, I don't know, a bit different. He badly lost focus and perspective. Within a number of hours finding, following that pledge of loyalty, we now begin reading in verse 54, Luke chapter 22. Then took they him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house. And Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were sat down, to get, sat down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, This man was also with him. And he denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. And after a little while another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. At about the space of one hour, after another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow was also with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while he yet spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. I think one of the Gospels also tell us that Peter, after the third time, began to swear and curse. I don't notice me. A few more things we should remember as we gather around the table this morning. We should remember the brutal treatment he received at the hands of the soldiers. 
We should remember the mocking, the binding of his hands, the spitting, the beating of fists, the slap in his face, the crown of thorns pushed into his skull. We should remember the whipping, the scourging by the Roman guards, the carrying of the cross, the nailings of his hands and feet. We ask God to lead us to Calvary. Of the many horrors at Calvary, one that is especially acute was just the shame of it all. This was a public execution. The condemned were generally all but naked. To add to this, I read the prophecy from Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8. All they that see me laugh to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. I guess most of us have probably suffered a little bit sometime in life. Yeah, it's one thing to suffer for something you kind of deserve. It's another thing to do it unjustly before a whole nation as they ridicule you. These kind of things coming from lips and actions of the very people that you created in the first place. This cup, this broken bread, is a reminder that Jesus not only died, but that he was killed. And I know we say he gave his life, and he did but he was also killed. Jesus did not die of old age, of an accident or illness. He was executed for a crime that he did not commit. He was killed in one of the most brutal and painful methods known to man. Lead me to Calvary. No doubt he experienced severe head trauma and bodily damage from the nails, the hunger, the thirst, the exhaustion, the emotional agony, and what was meant to be a slow suffocation upon the cross. I read somewhere that there really was no standard way of conducting a crucifixion. The general practice in the Roman world involved a first stage where the condemned was flogged and scourged, beaten. Literary sources suggest that the condemned did not usually carry the whole cross. He only had to carry the cross beam to the place of crucifixion where a stake was fixed to the ground a stake that was used for multiple executions. Josephus, the historian, says this was both practical and cost-effective because he said wood was a scarce commodity in Jerusalem, 
during the first, four cent during the first century AD. But upon the arrival at Calvary, the condemned was then stripped and attached to the crossbeam with nails, ropes, tied. I was looking for this text this morning and I kind of thought about it just before we left and I didn't get it, I didn't find it, but I, I know there's a passage somewhere that tells us that Jesus' back was beaten so bad The writer suggests that it looks like a plow went through with furs, creating furs in his back. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to understand how open furs wounds would respond to sliding up the backside of a rough pull. Lead me to Calvary. If the condemned was able to endure the torture for a long time, the executioners would usually come and break the legs to accelerate the death. We also know that a Roman soldier pierced the side of Jesus while he was on the cross. Probably a practice just to ensure that he was indeed dead. In some cases, the condemned would actually die during the first stage, the flogging stage, especially when bone parts or lead were added to the whips. If the crucifixion occurred on a hot day, the loss of fluid from sweating, coupled with the loss of his blood from the flogging and the injuries, would lead to death from hypovolemic shock. If the execution occurred on a cold day, the condemned would usually die from hypothermia. Neither the traumas caused by the nail injuries nor the bleeding were the prime causes of death in a crucifixion. It was actually the position of the body during the crucifixion, producing a gradual, painful pro process of suffocating. The diaphragm and intercostal muscles involved in the breathing process would become so weak and exhausted Given enough time, the crucified victim was simply unable to breathe. And so breaking the legs so that they couldn't keep pushing themselves up for breath was a way to accelerate the process. And we just read that they wanted to make sure he dies before nightfall because there was a holy day coming up. Lead me to Calvary. So as we take the bread, we should remember, and the cup, we should remember 
Jesus' death. A death which he could easily have escaped and avoided. Had he not loved me so much. In Matthew 26, verse 53, we have this statement of Jesus. Thinkest thou not, I'm sorry, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? Those of you who know the passage well, what had just occurred that made Jesus say this? Ah, Peter took his sword, cut off the ear of one of the servants. What's, what's a legion? How many is a legion? I think it's six. Six thousand or more. So maybe it could go up to that. But I think it was six, a legion was six thousand soldiers. So if you use the number six, think about how many angels would be in 12 legions. All right. Jesus said he actually had access to more than 12. And what would be the combined strength of 12 legions of angels? I think as we think about this legion, that Jesus, these legions that Jesus had access to, had he requested something like that, is pretty noteworthy. The only way he was going to be taken that night in the garden is if he allowed himself to be taken. That's why he told Peter, I'm sorry, that's why he told Pilate, thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. So if we think about a legion, a legion is a military term that was uh, taken, used in the Roman army. I read that it's at least 6,000 Roman soldiers. So it was 6,000 of angels in a legion. And now an amazing example of this is found in Mark chapter 5, verse 9, where the Bible tells us that of the demon-possessed um, man there uh, that lived there by the Gadareans, the Bible says he had a legion of demons. That would be a horrible state to be in. 6,000 demons residing in him. So as we think about how many angels would be in 12 legions, the calculations tell us that had he requested it, we discover that 12 legions of angels would include 72, well, one legion of angels is 72,000 angels. But since Jesus said that the Father has more than 12 legions, how many, how many potential angels were actually available to Jesus when he was arrested? Now, before we do the calculation there, let's 
think about what Isaiah chapter 37 verse 36 records about one single angel. It says there that one single angel obliterated 185,000 men in one night. One angel. So if a single angel has that kind of power, how much combined strength would there be in 12 legions of angels? Six thousand angels. Twelve. Well, let me read. And I'll just read this so I get this right because these numbers are just kind of. Since a single angel was able to obliterate 185,000 men in one night, it would mean that combined strength in a legion of six thousand angels would be enough to destroy one billion one hundred ten million men, and that's just the combined power of one legion of angels. So we have this multiplication of 185,000 by 12 legions, which is actually the number of angels that Jesus, well, no, Jesus said he has more than this available to the night he was arrested. So when we do all that, um, we come up with 13, that Jesus had, yeah, we have the combined strength at Jesus' disposal to have annihilated at least 13,320,000,000 men. And that's about the twice amount of men that live on the face of the earth today. Suffice to say, Jesus didn't need Peter's little sword that night. Had he chosen to do so, Jesus could have summoned 72,000 magnificent, mighty, dazzling, glorious, overwhelming, powerful angels into the garden to obliterate obliterate the Roman soldiers and the temple police who had come to arrest him. In fact, the combined strength in 12 legions of angels could have wiped out the entire human race that night. But Jesus didn't call on this kind of supernatural help that was available to him. Why? Not my will, but thine be done. Lead me to Calvary. Jesus knew the time had come for him to voluntarily lay down his life for my sins. Jesus did not go unwillingly to the cross. He did not just die a martyr's death. He went to the cross voluntarily. He went there to die in my place, in your place so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could have eternal life. And this is why we pause before we take of these emblems to examine our lives and remember why Jesus suffered and died. In conclusion, early Saturday morning, November 12th, 1986, Jamie Estep was traveling from her home in Stillwater, Oklahoma to work the morning shift at the restaurant along the interstate. As she rounded the last curve before she would turn onto the frontage road, a car in her lane speeding at over 90 miles an hour 
came toward her. Jamie swerved her car, but could not avoid the oncoming vehicle. She was struck on the driver's side, and the young, vivacious teenager with bright blue eyes and an even brighter future was killed instantly. The driver of the speeding vehicle, Lucas Jones, was going home from an all-night party with his friends. He was drunk. And while he was thrown from his car at the point of impact, he walked away from the accident with only scrapes, bruises, and a broken arm. Lucas was not some monster, or really even a bad 17-year-old boy. In fact, he was on the honor roll at school and a member of the music band. He, on this particular night, simply had a little too much alcohol and should not have been driving a car. He made what many viewed as a simple, tragic mistake. At his trial, witnesses testified of Lucas's achievements in the classroom his service to the community, his kind heart, even his church involvement. The prosecuting attorney reminded the court that while all these facts about Lucas may be true, he nevertheless drove a car that exceeded the speed limit while intoxicated and took the life of an innocent victim. He says punishment needs to be imposed. The court waited in anticipation for the judge's verdict in the case. And when the judge spoke from his bench, he said to the remorseful Lucas, he says, Lucas, the witnesses have testified. You are indeed a decent young man. And from your own statement, I realize that you are truly sorry for the crime you have committed. So I want to believe that. And I want to believe, as you say, you will never touch alcohol again. But he says, and there was a long pause, a young innocent girl is dead today because of your irresponsibility and nothing you can do will bring her back. Her friends and family mourn the loss. I therefore sentence you to two years in the juvenile center. And since you have already spent 16 months, the balance of your time will be eight months. A gasp came over the courtroom from Jamie's family thinking the sentence thinking the sentence was not nearly severe enough but the judge wasn't quite finished he went on. For the rest of your natural life, 
every year on November 12th. You are, you are to go to the scene where you have plowed into Jamie's car and think about your actions. Son, I don't want you ever to forget what you've done. I want you to recall your poor judgment, the life that was taken, and your part in it. Brothers and sisters, family here at Peckway, is there really that much difference between us and Lucas Jones? Isn't it true that our sentence isn't nearly severe enough? If we even have one. After all, we sing the words, it was my sin that held him there. We sing, he was nailed to the cross for me. We sing, my sins were upon his shoulders. Was it for crimes that I have done? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, his, his Father, hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He did, not deserve to, he did not deserve to die. We did. He took our place. On him was laid my iniquity. And so that we will never forget... we ask him to take us back to Calvary. Son, never forget what has been done for you today. We too remember and acknowledge this morning, his dying breath hath brought me life. What a savior and what a salvation. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11.
1 Corinthians 11, starting to read in verse 25. <clears throat> Actually, let's stand for the reading and remain standing for prayer. And when he had given thanks, sorry, verse 25. I will start verse, actually, let's start verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh Onworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, 